Once again, we have the privilege and the honor to sit under the authority of God's Word. Please turn in your Bibles or on your electronic devices to Mark chapter 12. We have been in this middle section of Mark, what we've called Act 2 of Mark's Gospel, here in the um, kind of the in-between area where Christ has entered Jerusalem and we are in the midst of Passion Week and we are seeing these interchanges, these um, encounters between our Lord Jesus and between the leaders of the Jews. We have seen uh, various groups come to our Lord and approach him with questions, often seeking to trap him in his words. They have quizzed Jesus about his authority, about paying taxes to Caesar, and most recently we saw a question posed by the Sadducees, that group that did not believe in the resurrection, and they sought to trap Jesus in a question about the resurrection. And each time, Jesus wisely addresses these questions, and each time, he exposes their hearts. And with each of these encounters, we, as we read this, as we study God's word, we grow in our understanding of Christ's power and authority, and also what it means to follow him. Our text this evening is a bit different in that the questioner who comes to Jesus is recognizing the wisdom that Jesus displayed. And at least on the surface, it seems to be a more positive encounter than the previous ones. And Jesus has some kind words for this man, yet there is a note of sadness at this, in this text. For we are never told what the scribe does in relation to and as a result of his encounter with the Lord Jesus. So let us turn and let us read our text. But before we do, let us pray and ask God's blessing upon his holy and inerrant word. Lord, we come before you, a needy people. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word, and in it is all that we need for life and godliness. So, Lord, grant us grace that we can see in the pages of your word what we need to see tonight. And, Lord, may we leave this place better understanding your commandments, better understanding who you are, Lord Jesus, and what it means to follow you. And may we love you with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength, we pray. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Mark 12, beginning with verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard him, them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him 
any more questions. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. There's a big difference in how people approach the things of God. Some come with preconceived ideas. Some come with doubts. Some come with antagonism against the things of God. I remember in seminary as as I was introduced to what our society considers the great thinkers of history, it was often many of them came with doubts and they came with antagonism against the things of God. But my professor stressed upon us the importance of coming with faith, seeking understanding. Faith, seeking understanding. And it seems at least like we said on the surface that this scribe, this man that comes to Jesus asking about the greatest commandment, is seeking understanding. He comes with what appears to be an honest question. He says simply, what is the greatest commandment of all? As we've seen over the past weeks, there's, there's much to learn from these questions. We're, we're kind of in the middle of a series of questions, as we've said. There's much to learn. And as we have in the past, we want to look at the question. We want to look at the answer. We want to look at the response. So that is a simple outline that we have. The question, the command, and the response, both of the scribe and of our Lord. The scribes of Jesus' day were the religious lawyers of that time. They studied the law of God. They wrote about it. They wrote commentaries about it. And at times they would even provide the legal services that we often think of when we think of lawyers, that of writing contracts and so forth. They were often lumped together in Jesus' teaching with the Pharisees. Remember how the Gospel of Matthew records how Jesus would, would say to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And he had sharp words for them. And the reason for that was, is because, they, yes, they were lawyers. Yes, they sought to understand God's law. But as we know from studying them, they added to God's law. They prided themselves, like the Pharisees, they prided themselves on following the exact letter of the law, the law while ignoring the spirit of the law. They were more concerned with the traditions that they themselves had created than having a heart of devotion to God. And Jesus at one point said that they voided the word of God by those traditions. However, this particular scribe has evidently seen something in Jesus that has caught his attention. Perhaps it was the way that he answered the Sadducees. Likely it was, as this account follows right on the heels of that. This man likely believed in the resurrection and in the authority of Scripture. And he probably liked seeing Jesus kind of shut down the Sadducees and put them in their place about the question of the resurrection by using God's word to answer that. He saw some of the wisdom and the authority of Jesus that I trust you have seen over these past several weeks as we've looked at these texts. And he asks this question, what is the most important commandment of all. Commentators tell us that there were 613 commands within the Torah, within the first five books, the the book of Moses, the books of Moses, 613 commands. So it might seem natural that we would wonder if there's a priority to these 613 commands. Rabbis of that day would would sometimes give um, weight to these, whether they were heavy or whether they were light, and, and, and try to understand the significance, at least in their own minds. And so he comes asking, what is the foremost of the commandments? 
And once again, Jesus wisely answers the question. And once again, Jesus uses the words of Scripture to answer. And as we look at this command, we want to notice two things. First, we want to see the significance of the command and also the substance of the command. First, the significance of the command. Jesus begins his, his answer to the scribe by quoting a passage that was familiar to every good Jew of that day and even now to this day. He quotes the opening phrase of the Shema from Deut Deuteronomy 6. The word Shema, perhaps you already know, is the Hebrew word for hear, which is the first word in, in Deuteronomy 6.4, where God speaks to his children, Israel, through Moses, saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you this day shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And the passage goes on to say, this is where you should talk of them, and this is where you should place them before you, so they are always upon your mind. These are the words that Moses gave to the children of Israel right before they went into the promised land. They were there, and Moses is saying, don't forget God's law. Always keep God's law. Keep this before you. And many of the Jews kept these words literally. They would, they would write this, the words of these verses on a pieces of leather and put it upon, their, upon their, their forearm. They would also maybe inscribe it on little pieces of parchment and put it upon their doorposts. They, they tried to keep it literally because that's what it said. This was the great statement of Jewish monotheism. Jesus is proclaiming his orthodoxy here. Christ's answer was significant in that he proclaimed God as the one true God, the one that ought to be worshipped. And he showed that God has revealed himself in and through his word. God's law is of utmost importance. And in quoting Deuteronomy 6, Jesus is speaking in very understandable language to this scribe that there is a commandment of foremost importance, and that is that he must love and serve God supremely. We also want to examine the substance of this command. Jesus said in our text in verse 30, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Notice the word that is report, repeated before all four of these nouns, that word all, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That is a high bar. The heart was considered the seat of human emotions and desires. To love the Lord with your whole heart or all your heart means that your inclinations, your desires are wholly sanctified to the cause of Christ. Commentators tell us that to love the Lord with all your soul means that you love the Lord so much you are willing to die for the cause of Christ. Jesus adds the concept of the mind here as he's teaching the scribe, emphasizing the importance of using our, our reasoning ability and our cognitive powers for God's glory. Finally, we are to love the Lord with all of our strength, with every ounce of energy that we have. I've, I was not in the military, but I know that there is a thing called the Army Physical Fitness Test. 
and it's a test that enlisted men and women have to take, and it's a measure of their strength. And I've, I've been working out with some guys, and every few months we do that to kind of measure how much we've improved and, and kind of try to, to keep ourselves accountable physically. And one of the, a couple of the exercises is, is doing a certain exercise as many repetitions as you can. And we try to encourage each other to give it all of our strength when we're doing that exercise. So we are trying to wring out every ounce of energy that we have to try to get the best score on this test. To try to prove ourselves, I guess, in a way. But I think this is the idea that, that, that Jesus is getting at here. To love the Lord with every ounce of energy within you. It means to love the Lord with everything you've got. Do you do that? Is that what would characterize your love for God? Is that the way you would honestly describe your love for the God who made you? And then Jesus goes on. There's a second part to this. Jesus then quotes another Old Testament passage and pulls in from Leviticus 19 saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The original context of that verse is Leviticus 19 where where God is calling his people to be holy. And the second verse of that uh, uh, chapter 19 says the familiar phrase, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Based upon the holiness of God, you are to love your neighbor. Really, these, these two parts are two parts of the same command. Jesus said that there is no other commandment, singular Commandment greater than these. Jesus here is summarizing the Ten Commandments. I hope you're familiar with those and recognize that the first four, or they call the first tablet of the commandments, deal with our relationship with God. And the, next, the last six deal with our relationship with others. And Jesus has neatly summarized this, all of the Ten Commandments, saying, it is this, love God and love your neighbor. And really, if you get the first one right, the other should flow out of it. 1 John 4 plainly tells us that whoever loves God must also love his brother. And if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. If you love God wholeheartedly as you should, then you will naturally love those made in the image of God. And especially those who are your brothers and sisters in Christ, But here in Mark, Jesus does not limit it just to within the household of God. He says to love your neighbor as yourself. And in the Gospel of Luke, Luke relates Christ's summary of the law. And he talks about how the lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? He is asking, who, who then should I love? Of course, in answer to that, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And he says in the end, he asks the question... Who, is, who then is my neighbor? And it was the one who showed mercy. It was the Samaritan. John Calvin said about this passage, the general truth conveyed is that the greatest stranger is our neighbor. And he later states that our neighborhood is the entire human race. Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Do you love the greatest stranger? Do you love that person that is most unlike you? Oh, it's easy to love those that 
are like us. It's easy to love those that are similar to us, but it's much harder to love those who we don't understand. Let me ask you, does this summary of the law make it easier or harder to be obedient to God's law? In my opinion, it makes it harder because you do see the common element is love and, and our society seems to make love so cheap that, yes, we love everybody, sure. And if we ask people in the church if they loved God, I certainly hope that we would all say yes. But ask, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all, all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? That's a different story, and I think it should cause each of us to pause and think. Do you love your neighbor? I'm not just asking, do you wish your neighbor well? You might say, sure, I hope his home is safe, that he remains employed, that he keeps his grass mowed and doesn't park his car on my yard. But do I love him as myself? That's a bit harder. Again, Jesus has gone for our hearts here. He is exposing us for what we are. And he's giving us a complete picture of what it means to follow him. We've considered this question from the scribe. And we've seen the answer as Christ expounds his command, showing us the significance and the substance of this most important commandment. Finally, let us look at the response. First, we see the response from the scribe. Remember, he's a lawyer. He's a student of the law. And he is reflecting upon and really judging what Jesus has said. Verse 32 says, you are right, teacher. The scribe tells Jesus, you are right, teacher. The word for right could also be translated well or even beautiful. The scribe is very approving of the answer that Jesus gives. But then the scribe says something really remarkable. Look at verse 20, uh, 33 with me. To love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's a lot for a scribe to say, especially in the vicinity of the Temple Mount, especially during Passover week when they were, when they were preparing to offer the Passover lamb. And here this scribe is saying, Jesus, what you have just said is really more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This man is recognizing that there is more to following Jesus than just the sacrificial system that characterized Judaism. According to Jewish leaders of that day, if you obeyed the law and offered sacrifices, you could keep your place in the covenant. They saw themselves as privileged people being born into the covenant, they, they saw themselves as being right with God, in a sense, before birth. And they, they saw their sacrifices as a way of earning God's favor and remaining in the covenant. That was how they maintained their salvation. But Jesus is turning that system on its head. Not just the sacrificial system. Yes, he did that through his sacrificial death, through fulfilling all the prophecies about him and being that sacrificial lamb. Yes, he did that, but he is also turning that man-centered system on its head by showing them and us that we can never earn our way into the covenant or maintain ourselves in the covenant by our own works. 
And this man, this scribe, was evidently seen beyond the system that his own peers had so carefully constructed. He saw at least a little bit into the idea that Jesus taught that life in the new covenant, in his kingdom, in the kingdom of God, has much more to do with your heart and much less to do with following a system or code. Following God with wholehearted devotion is much more than offering whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The scribe recognized the truth in Christ's words. The other response that our text records is that of Christ back to the scribe. And again, Jesus commends him for his understanding. Jesus recognizes that the scribe has answered wisely. It was as though he was beginning to see rightly this whole concept of life in God's kingdom. And Jesus says something remarkable to him. He said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus can say so much with so few words. You are not far from the kingdom of God. I think that Jesus was somewhat intentionally vague with this man. Not to play with him, not to mess with him. But he wanted this man to go away and think about what that meant. That he was not far from the kingdom of God. How can you be near the kingdom of God? And just what is the kingdom of God? Well, we've talked about it. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom in Mark 1. He said that he was ushering in that kingdom. And the appropriate response was repentance and faith. And while the idea of the kingdom of God is not explicitly stated in the Old Testament, it is all throughout there because we see that God is king. He is sovereign. He rules and reigns. And when John the Baptist came as the forerunner of Christ, he came and he said that the kingdom of God is near. And then when Jesus came, he said the kingdom of God is here. It's where Jesus is because he is the king and this is his kingdom. And to enter God's kingdom means that you repent and believe the gospel as Jesus called the people to do there in Mark 1.15. And Jesus tells this scribe he is not far from this kingdom. He is so very close to the kingdom. He has met the king. He has agreed with the king up to a point. But he's not yet entered the kingdom. He's not a member of the kingdom. He's on the one yard line. But he hasn't made the goal. To enter the kingdom of God means that we must come to the end of ourselves. It means that we have to recognize that we cannot perfectly obey God's law. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, that we are to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. That's a standard that we cannot attain. But to come to Christ, we recognize that we can only do it by the merit of Christ's obedience. We cannot love God as we ought. We cannot love our neighbor as we should. It is only as we trust in the work that Christ has done. He it is who has loved his father perfectly. And he it is that has loved his neighbor as he should. It's only as we come to the end of ourselves and cast ourselves unreservedly upon God's mercy that we can find grace. It's through that great exchange in which Christ takes on our sin, bears the penalty of our sin, and gives to us credits to our account his perfect obedience, his righteousness. And do you know what? 
when that happens, we find that we are in God's kingdom. And because we have been brought into the kingdom, we love the king. And we love the others in the kingdom. We love those made in God's image. Not perfectly, but really and truly. And we love his commands. And as disciples, we should be growing in that love. We desire to love him with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. We join with the hymn writer and say, Take my love, Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. The great English preacher John Wesley, who was also a hymn writer, did not write the hymn I just quoted but he was a man, John Wesley was a man, not unlike the scribe that we saw in our text this evening. Wesley was born in 1703. I believe he was the 15th of 19 children in that home to um, his parents. He attended Oxford. He grew up in a Christian home. And while he was in Oxford, he formed, he and some other men formed a holy club. Many, many of you know the story they would read God's word. There they found accountability to each other. And they sought through various methods to cultivate a life of piety. What they did there was good. They fasted. They prayed at set times throughout the day. They attended worship and they partook of the Lord's Supper. And in 1735, Wesley was in his young 30s. He took a position as a missionary to the American colony of Georgia here in America to minister to the Indians there. But his attempts were a failure. He later wrote in his journal about that time. I went to America to convert the Indians. But oh, who shall convert me? Who? What is he that will deliver me from this evil heart of mischief? I have a fair summer religion. I ask you tonight. Do you have a fair summer religion? That is only in name and not in reality. Wesley then returned later to his native in, uh, England. And on the return voyage, he met some Moravian missionaries who greatly impressed him at their piety and their devotion to God. They had a great influence upon him. And on the morning of May 24th, 1738, he opened his Bible and read this text that we read this evening. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Later in that day, he records in his diary that, that he went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle of the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart, through faith in Christ, Wesley said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law and sin and death. How did John Wesley enter the kingdom of God? He did it by trusting in Christ, fully in Christ alone for salvation. What about you tonight? If you are within the sound of my voice, and if you have seriously contemplated this text, I think I can say that you are not far from the kingdom of God. But there's one thing about this account that leaves us wondering, that we've already alluded to earlier we never read if this scribe really and fully entered the kingdom of God or if he stayed in that place where he was yet trusting in himself. 
Are you tonight trusting in your own supposed goodness? Are you hoping that loving God with some of your heart, a little of your soul, some of your mind, a portion of your strength is enough? Are you hoping that hanging around the church is enough to make you good? Are you thinking you can go this alone? Let me tell you the bad news is you can't. All your righteousness, all your supposed goodness is is filthy rags, the prophet Isaiah says. We can never earn our way to God. But the good news is that Christ has died. Christ has risen and he will save you. He has earned salvation for you. If you will only come to him in repentance and trusting in Christ alone. Like Wesley, you must trust in Christ and Christ alone. For he it is and only he can save you. Let us pray.